Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. China releases a white paper on the Taiwan question on Wednesday. It outlines China's goal as peaceful reunification while reserving the right to use all necessary measures. It also highlights the past four decades of economic development and increased cross-strait exchanges as the foundation for reunification. The white paper named the ruling Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan, or DPP, as the force stoking tensions in cross-strait relations. What do people in Taiwan think? Are they confident of reunification? I sat down for an exclusive interview with Hong Xiu Chu, former chairperson of the Chinese Kuomintang Party. She is also chairperson of the Chinese Cyan Gi's Peace Education Foundation. Ms. Hong, thank you very much for joining us. How do you look at the mid- and long-term mm -hmm. impact of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? Some say the event will accelerate the reunification of China. What is your take on this? Well, Pelosi's visit in Taiwan had set off a whirlwind. It could bring thunder and storm and it could take quite some time to observe its subsequent impact. But in the short term, it has really muddled the water and sparked a crisis in the Taiwan Strait. And it's because of her trip that prompted the Chinese People's Liberation Army to conduct drills in the region. Apart from that, we've also seen suspension measures concerning Taiwan's agricultural, fishery, foods and construction industries which would hit Taiwan pretty badly. And inevitably, the local people will suffer from psychological traumas. These are the short-term impacts. In long term, we believe that the Chinese mainland will step up military, economic and diplomatic efforts to suppress secessionists and the contacts between separatists with external forces. Of course, we trust that the mainland will continue to implement policies to benefit Taiwan people. However, the mainland will take tougher actions to counter efforts by the Democratic Progressive Party to seek American support for independence and moves taken by the U.S. to contain China using Taiwan. This is what we believe will happen in the future. But we're not sure if Pelosi's visit will accelerate the reunification of China. We know that it indeed has angered 1.4 billion people on the mainland. We can understand the discontent of our mainland compatriots about the situation as a result of Pelosi's visit. And I believe the authorities will have to take public sentiment seriously. The mainland will undoubtedly shift efforts from fighting independence to boosting reunification in an enhanced manner.
However, the G7 bloc, together with the High Representative of the European Union, released a joint statement on August the 3rd. It says, quote-unquote, there is no justification to use a visit as a pretext for aggressive military activity in the Taiwan Strait. It also warns Chinese mainland not to unilaterally change the status quo by force in the region. What's your response to this rhetoric? And the statement also says there is no change in the respective one-China policies comma, where applicable, comma, and basic positions on Taiwan of the G7 members. What does it mean, this where applicable? Are these countries flip-flopping on their stances? To answer your question, for every effect, there's a cause. The G7 has long been a U.S.-led political and economic alliance. Except Japan, the rest are also members of NATO. There's no surprise that they are speaking up for the United States, as they are a group, a political-economic gang. They do not reflect on the eastern expansion of NATO, which is the root cause of the war in Ukraine. They don't examine themselves nor feel ashamed of their mistakes. They always point fingers at others and walk away scot-free. From the Russia-Ukraine conflict to the current tension in the Taiwan Strait, their behavior is consistent and clear. As for who has unilaterally changed the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, have you noticed that after coming into power, the DPP has discarded the 1992 consensus, saying that the two sides of the strait are not subordinated to each other? The United States pays lip service to its one-China policy while in essence has been undermining it. Any country will fight back when their sovereignty is infringed upon. Instead of condemning the perpetrators and troublemakers, the G7 has confounded black and white cause and effect. This reflects the selfishness of G7. What's more, the G7 has been dictating world affairs. That's not just from us Chinese, but from an international relations expert from Singapore. With their economic advantages accumulated over the years, they condescend to the rest of the world. They trumpet slogans of freedom and human rights and their unchanged stance on one China, while denouncing others for defending sovereignty. Haven't they gone a bit nuts?
Taiwan media conducted an online poll and it showed that almost 60% of Taiwan people are not confident in the U.S. determination on preserving the so-called democracy in Taiwan, while only 10% of the respondents believe the opposite. How do you interpret this result and how is this representative of Taiwan people's sentiments? The poll could only be regarded as a reference, but the result did show that Taiwan people are not stupid. We can tell that the DPP has run out of steam in its tricks to cling to the U.S. to seek independence and confronting China to defend Taiwan. Multiple reports have said that the Taiwan authorities, the DPP, has actually been paying for American lobbyists for continuously lobbying U.S. politicians, uh, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, for them to come and visit Taiwan and uh, beef up the kind of relationship between the United States and the island. And it's allegedly the authorities are spending up to millions of U.S. dollars in doing exactly that. So what kind of role has the authorities on Taiwan, the Democratic Progressive Party, been playing on Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? What do they want to achieve behind these uh, surface? I got some materials on this, and let me share with you. It says DPP has been lobbying policy via public relations agencies since 2018. How much did they pay in total? 3,149,377 dollars, about 94 million New Taiwan dollars. The authority said it's not a big deal. The Taiwan representative office in the U.S. has been influencing U.S. politicians through PR companies. It's a routine practice, they say. But some netizens found on the official website of U.S. Department of Justice that from February 2018 to April this year, 16 engagements were made with Pelosi. 16. More than 3 million U.S. dollars were paid for such efforts. An additional 22,000 U.S. dollars were paid monthly to the PR company. Of course, the authorities deny they bought the visit. Really. They know what the truth is. If they spend this money for the good of Taiwan, we can't complain. Nobody can say anything. But did Pelosi come to bring benefit to the Taiwan people? What did she say? She said her visit was to reaffirm their support for the island and promote our common interest. But from what I shared with you just now, she came for her self-interest and American interest. Where is our common interest? It is but a political force financed by the DPP using taxpayers' money.
演的一场政治大戏而已。所以刚才您特别强调说，民进党到底是个居心何在？我们认为民进党是就想。You just asked about the DPP's motivation. We think that they seek to use Pelosi's visit to escalate tensions in the street, and their grand scheme of colluding with the U.S. to counter China and confronting China to defend Taiwan. Tsai Ing-wen attempts to consolidate her role and win votes. Her intention is naked in the eyes of Taiwan people. They know she wants to create the impression that the U.S. has her back. If the mainland protests, she could act further. The DPP could then capitalize on a sense of victimhood, saying the DPP would defend Taiwan. They're using this tactic to deceive the people, but I believe the tactic has fallen apart, especially after the disclosure of the PR payments. I'm not sure for what exactly Pelosi came to Taiwan. The U.S. is in essence overturning its one-China policy. All this makes us very angry. 我不知道佩洛西这次来台到底是所谓何来？美国是也变相的在利用各种方式来掏空这个中国的一个内涵，这是我们非常气愤的一件事。Many thanks to Ms. Hong Xiaochu, former leader of the Chinese Kuomintang Party and chairperson of the Chinese Cyan Geese Peace Education Foundation, joining me from Taipei. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, I'll talk to Joseph Wanandi, vice chair of the board of trustees of an influential think tank in Indonesia. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is the point. Chinese President Xi Jinping held talks with、uh, Indonesian President Joko Widodo in Beijing on July the 26th. He was the first foreign head of state to visit after Beijing Winter Olympic Games. China was also President Widodo's first stop on his first trip to East Asia since the COVID-19 pandemic began. What inspired the trip, and what's the significance of、uh, China-Indonesia ties in the region? How are the Belt and Road Initiative、uh, and its projects strengthening? Cooperation. I had earlier talked to Joseph Binandi, Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees at the Indonesia Center for Strategic and International Studies Foundation. Joining me from Jakarta. Mr. Wanandi, thank you very much for joining us. On July the 11th, Indonesian President Joko Widodo met with visiting Chinese State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and both sides mentioned、yes. the construction of the Jakarta-Bandung High-Speed Railway, which is a landmark Belt and Road、right. Initiative project. So, what's the significance of that railway project, and how is the construction progressing, according to your knowledge? For us, of course, the Establishment of such a railway system is a new one and and a modernizing,、uh, actually, Indonesia by a, by a jump, and that's very important. But also, of course, this is、uh, the project that is so important for both of us, China and Indonesia, and that's why we would like to participate in the BRI projects, as you know, and this is the first one. Unfortunately, I have to admit, there was some delay, and and basically because 
of the problems of the piece of land. Piece of land, not only the ownership that was at the beginning, but also, you know, that the piece of land is difficult uh, to, because of the volcanoes and etc., to really be on the safe side, having that ready. So, but we are looking forward that uh, as planned that we have to have it ready within the next two years. So we hope that we can really have it, you know, and be part of it in the BRI project. According to a poll released by an Australian think tank, only 43% of Indonesians say they felt China's growth was uh, good for Indonesia, down from 54% in 2011. Do you think the poll reflects the real public opinions in the country? Has there been a decline in the favorability uh, in the eyes of uh, Indonesians of China? I don't think so from the Indonesian side. This is an Australian poll. And you know polls. Polls is just a moment of time that you take it and maybe, maybe fail it for that moment. But then it, 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 it can have a lot of questions as well. So I don't want to really go in depth to that. You know? Because we are doing many polls ourselves for our domestic politics too. And, and, and you always have to take a, a lot of grain of salt, you know, to, to, to see at the results. That is one. And mind you, uh, we, we, we know Australia itself, of course, is a schizophrenic a nation. In the sense, you know, their mind is in, in New York or Washington, D.C. Their heart is in London, but their stomach is in Asia. And they must be realizing that. I think, I hope, earlier than later, that that economic part is so important and more important than anything else in our part of the world. In May, you met with uh, the Chinese ambassador to Indonesia, Liu Kang, and uh, yeah. you agreed to strengthen cooperation between think tanks of the two countries in poverty reduction and education, among other things, of course. But That's these right. are the uh, few areas that have been given right. special spotlight. Uh, why these areas and uh, uh, what are your takeaways from China's poverty alleviation efforts? Well, as a matter of fact, education is, of course, very important and we have to know more about China. There's no doubt about that. And we have not done our part to know China better than actually has to be, you know, as a partner of China. That is number one. But on the poverty alleviation, we are struck by how much China has done and so consistent. I, mean, I think it already started under, under uh, 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 former leaders, of course, including, you know, from the beginning, Mao Zedong, always alleviating poverty is an important program of China. But, of course, President Xi in the last 10 years has done tremendously. And, and if we, I look at, you know, what he has done, he has visited all this region that are going through this process and this program. He went there in the last 10 years at least 50 times to see himself what has been done. He has spent so much money also and investment in really getting it moving. He has spent so many people 
involved the party cadre but also the common people how to participate in this alleviation and we are actually you have to be proud of it and we would like to emulate that but mind you uh, we are not on that part so so we have partly and maybe slowly to emulate what is possible but we have to try and we are doing some work hopefully in the near future with Fudan University on this issue Oh, these are very nice, nice words, very kind words. Thank you very much for such high remarks. Um, but the world is in a very difficult situation uh, for obvious reasons. There are a lot of uh, competition, rivalry going on, and uh, uh, especially concerning China. You know, the competition sure. that the United States sees with China and it in, yeah. insists on competing with China. Um, so. What is your understanding of what has happened? What has gone wrong? That something has gone wrong, obviously, that we are uh, seeing what we're seeing today. And what do people need to understand if we are to come back to the more important things the world's need, especially the developing world need? Peace, development, yes. stability, prosperity, jobs, so on and so forth. Yes, sir. Well, uh, two things. One is domestic. Now, of course, there is a domestic part in it, you know, that the, the, the countries themselves has to take care of their own societies. And that has been lacking sometimes. And especially, can you, you can see that in the developed part, including the United States. They have to get right together domestically. We cannot do very much about it. But also internationally. And there is a lack of cooperation now. Multilateralism is the motto of President Xi, and we have to go after that. We must implement that. And that has been shown also in the foreign ministers' meeting of the G20 in Bali about a week ago. That, that multilateralism is lacking. We don't pay attention anymore to the others. We would like just to concentrate on ourselves. And that is not going to help, because then nobody can do it. And, and that, I think, is an awareness that we have to create. And then reform institutions that is already out of date. And third is leadership, which is lacking because of the deficient among us, but also because, well, you know, with due respect to the United States, of which I have studied quite a lot, you know, it, it, it is their leadership that is lacking. Partly, you know, and and I'm much more. I mean, I mean, now doing studies on China instead, because of the fact that you have done a better job, and we have to follow that. In May, U.S. President Joe Biden hosted. Uh, ASEAN leaders for a special summit and senior U.S. officials visited Southeast Asian yes. nations several times. And some are yes. saying that the U.S. is uh, compelling ASEAN countries to choose sides. Do you feel, I mean, do Indonesian or ASEAN countries feel the pressure from Washington to choose sides? And uh, is there a way to balance these two relationships? As you know, we, we have an, this is an old, actually historical uh, fact that our leaders, you know, in, in the revolution has already put down these principles of non-alignment and that we must not take sides because there is no uh, reason we should do that. We could do with both of them. 
always many of them you know and and that is the the the, the motto and the belief and the practice that we are trying to do so in our part of the world as you know we are trying to China to establish this this law of the sea convention uh, you know uh, acceptance through our you know bilateral asean china meetings and work i, I we were very much involved in that in the south china sea and and that is one of example you know uh, where we should do and uh, do our part and, and 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 can do that without doubts that we are going to hurt the united states or not that that is our problem and not theirs problem actually according to us Finally, later this year, the Communist Party of China will convene its 20th National Congress in Beijing. Uh, how do you look forward to the meeting? What are your expectations of the potential impact this meeting is going to have on China and, of course, the region? Well, as you know, we, we hope that what happened in China and the good things that China has done will be emulated by us in the future. We can become part of that. And we're trying to do that. And therefore, you know, what the, 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 the CPC's, you know, Congress and, and the future of CPC and the role of CPC that is, C is playing is, is critical to China and to us too. We cannot not only not escape, but we have to be more uh, participating, according to me, to make this as a whole, holy cooperation, especially of East Asian countries but also of the rest of the world. Thank you so much, Mr. Yusuf Wanandi, Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees of CSIS Foundation. It's a great pleasure to have talked to you. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. We've got The Point. Dunhuang. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Loved Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on the major podcast platforms. Why We Loved Dunhuang? You will have your answers.